Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from The National, date 6th June 2022, from the News section. Actor Mike Myers on why he chose a Scottish accent for Shrek by Rebecca Newlands. Mike Myers has revealed that he chose to voice iconic character Shrek with a Scottish accent due to his love for Scottish people. In a video interview with Vanity Fair in which the 59-year-old actor reflected on the 2001 animated comedy as well as fan favourites Wayne's World and Austin Powers, he talked about the idea of how to voice the lovable ogre. Myers said he wanted to make a change to make Shrek represent the working people in contrast to royalty like the film's villain Lord Farkad. He said, I always thought that ogres were working people, growing up as a working person. I tried it as a Canadian, but it just didn't have any oomph. Then I said, can I record it again as Scottish? Because I know fairy tales are a Eurocentric form. Scottish people are near and dear to me. I have relatives in Scotland and they are working people. It's a working people accent. And they went... No, we like it the way it is. And I said, oh, come on, just let me. Steven Spielberg said, well, why don't you try it once? Myers revealed that Spielberg then admitted the character was way better with a Scottish accent. He added, he sent me a lovely letter, Steven Spielberg, saying, you're so right, it's way better Scottish, thank you so much. Myers took on the voice role after passing after the passing of Saturday Night Live star Chris Farley, who recorded nearly all the dialogue in a New York accent before he died in 1997. He also rebuked claims that re-recording cost millions of dollars, adding, they spent some money but not the amount of money that has been reported in the press, I'd like to point out. Myers continued by saying that he was so determined for the sound to be perfect, he recorded it again without taking a cent. He said, and by the way, I recorded it all for free one more time and just happy to do so because I wanted it to be good. And there we have Shrek being Scottish. That article was by Rebecca Newlands. This article is from The National. Date 6th June 2022, from the Culture section. Tenerife, Spanish Isle draped in saltires, has Scottish links beyond the flag. By Robin McKelvey. As the familiar flag of St Andrew is hoisted up the ferry's mast, I gaze up to the highest mountain in these islands and think of 
hiking, great seafood and the rich culture. It may sound like it, but I'm not on Calmac. Scotland this is not, as I'm sailing to Tenerife, an island massively popular with Scottish tourists that swims in connections with the country that shares its flag. Tenerife is striking in many ways. For Scots, it's impossible not to be struck by the saltires that flutter across the island, seen on everything from civic buildings to the shirts of the island's football team. Over the years, I've heard a number of theories about why we share the same flag. One, that its use on Tenerife began as a tribute to the Scots who fought against the British in the Battle of Santa Cruz in 1797, the battle that cost Lord Nelson an arm. The Scottish links stretch back down the years. Many Scots drifted through the north of the island for centuries as trade grew with the ports of Santa Cruz and Puerto de la Cruz. Then, more recently, came tourism. The appeal of an island with an eternal spring climate, obvious to anyone who's experienced a Caledonian winter or a washout summer. I've been to Tenerife more than 20 times and feel very at home here. In Scotland, I start the day with porridge. On Tenerife, my breakfast cereal is sprinkled with goffio, a similar cereal-based staple. Politically, there are parallels too. Tenerife is closer to Morocco than to Madrid, and the Tenerifos have a proudly separate identity. We have devolution, and they have a semi-autonomous status. There is a desire among the people for independence here too. I don't need to explain on Tenerife my love of the mountains. Walking in the hills is ingrained into the island's very consciousness, as it is in Scotland. We have Ben Nevis, and Tenerife has Taida. This active volcano is the star attraction in Spain's most visited national park, soaring to almost three times the height of its Scottish sibling at 3,715 metres, easily the highest mountain in Spain. And this is where the appeal of Tenerife beyond year-round sunshine and beaches for me really kicks in. The mountains here are bigger. Everything is bigger and brighter in Macronesia. There are great theme parks in Loro Park, rated the world's finest zoo, and Siam Park, rated the best water park. But Tenerife is also a real-life Jurassic Park. This continent in miniature shares pine forests with Scotland, but also sports rainforest and ancient Lorisulva. They have heather here, but their Erica arborea can soar up to 10 metres tall. On every trip to Tenerife, I find new aspects that make me think of Scotland. This time, it is through José Maria, who works with El Cardón Nature Experience. I meet him in one of the island's bountiful banana plantations, and he shows me the shepherd's leap an amazing act of physical prowess used to negotiate this steep island. My heart is in my mouth as I watch him vault down from a high bluff using just the three metre long wooden pole he fashioned himself. 
There is only one other place I've heard of people using this, he smiles as he descends, and that is the Scottish Highlands. On this trip, I stay on this remarkable island at four hotels. The Scottish connections continue. At the plush Grand Melia Palacio de Isora, I savour Scottish smoked salmon over lunch on the terrace as I peer over the rum-esque Isle of La Gomera. We get a lot of Scottish guests and our staff really like them as they are so happy here, the hotel's Samantha Hernandez Garland tells me. At another of the island's best hotels, the Royal Hideaway Corrales Beach, I meet Valentina Hernandez. She laughs. I've heard about lots of Scottish connections. We even have our own whiskey. It's distilled on neighbouring La Palma, but we add a smoky peaty flavour to it. No one knows exactly where our original Goanche people were from. Maybe it was Scotland. The spacious four-star Mary Lanza is owned by a local man I've known for years. Horge Marichal tells me, I like active sports and our island and Scotland share a love for those and of course the mountains. My last night is in the simple three-star Aguarma, which I booked through Olympic holidays, as did Andy from Cooper, who I meet by the pool. I did wonder about the salt tyres. That makes sense now, Andy says. My wife and I were just saying this morning how we feel at home here and so many things reminded us of Scotland. I'm in good company then with Andy and with the 300,000 Scots who are drawn every year to this subtropical isle draped in the saltire. EasyJet fly to Tenerife from Edinburgh and Glasgow. For more tourist information, see webtenerife.co.uk. That article was by Robin McKelvey. This article is from The National, date 6th June 2022, from the News section. Viking Shetland Wind Farm. Man dies at Upper Kergord construction site. By Gregor Young. A 23-year-old man has died after he was injured at a wind farm construction site in Shetland. Police received a report that a man had been injured in the Upper Kergorg area at around 10.15am on Sunday. Emergency services attended, but the 23-year-old died at the scene. A Police Scotland spokesman said, Inquiries are ongoing to establish the full circumstances and the Health and Safety Executive will be informed in due course. The incident happened at a site where a converter is being built as part of the SSE Renewables Viking Wind Farm project, which will see 103 turbines set around Shetland. The site is run by Bam Nuttall, which the man who died worked for. A Bam Nuttall spokesman said, We can confirm an incident at our Viking Wind Farm project site on Shetland today, which resulted in the tragic fatality of a colleague. Our condolences are with their family and support has been made available to them and members of the team. An investigation is underway and we're working closely with our client and the authorities. SSE Renewables Head of Onshore Projects, Derek Hastings, 
said, We are devastated by today's news and our thoughts and condolences are with the family, friends and colleagues of the young man who tragically died. We are working closely with Bam Nuttall and the relevant authorities to understand what happened. That article was by Gregor Young. This article is from The National, date 6th June 2022, from the Politics section. We survived Queen's Jubilee. Now let's get popcorn out for Boris Johnson. By Kirsty Strickland. It was touch and go for a while, but there, we made it through. We survived the flag fest that was the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. At the beginning of the week, it looked like I might not be able to block it from my consciousness, as I had fully intended to do. My daughter says she understands why the concept of a monarchy with the social and economic hierarchy that it perpetuates is silly. But that didn't stop her putting on her fanciest dress and dusting off a plastic tiara as she fully committed to the theme in her school's Jubilee Disco. Thankfully, her pleas to watch the coverage didn't last long. She managed ten minutes of the doer marching before she switched back to Sabrina, the teenage witch. Order was restored in our house, but that didn't stop the wall-to-wall coverage of needy patriotism seizing control of the news channels for the weekend. And that annoyed me more than it ordinarily would, because, as we all know, there are much more pressing matters we have to attend to. Namely, the fate of the greased piglet Boris Johnson and his precarious grip on power. The Prime Minister might have hoped for a brief reprieve from Partygate as he put on his finery, asked an aide to check he'd done the buttons up correctly, and set out to join in the Jubilee celebrations. The assembled crowd had other ideas. The boos and jeers that could be heard as he ascended the stairs to St Paul's Cathedral with his wife Carrie was the sweetest song of the day. It was impossible to write off a crowd of royal watchers as a bunch of lefty woke Ramoners, so instead Johnson allies such as Nadine Doris simply pretended that the boos were actually cheers. That's not scraping the barrel, it's denying reality. For days there have been rumours swirling that the threshold of letters for a Tory vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister has already been met. It has been suggested that the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, would wait until Parliament returned from recess to make the announcement, so as not to overshadow the Jubilee celebrations. I know the Conservative Party is a law unto itself at the best of times, But if the fate of the Prime Minister has been put on hold so fans of the Royals can put up bunting and toast the monarch without distraction, then I will be very annoyed. My annoyance would undoubtedly be brief though, because after days of fawning royal pageantry, a vote of no confidence in the lying, law-breaking Prime Minister would be the perfect tonic. It's been a long week. So let's indulge ourselves for a moment in that delicious possibility. If the letters threshold has in fact been reached, Brady will inform the Prime Minister of the news at some point before the rest of us are told. 
From that point, things could move quickly. A vote could be held as early as tomorrow or Wednesday. Most commentators predict Johnson would survive that vote, though perhaps by a narrower margin than his predecessor Theresa May did. This analysis seems to be based on the number of Tory MPs who are on the government payroll and therefore expected to remain loyal to the Prime Minister. I'm not so sure. The vote is a secret ballot and there is no requirement for any MP to disclose, truthfully or otherwise, which way they went. Johnson is not a leader that inspires loyalty. He has no real friends within the Parliamentary Party, which is not at all surprising when you consider how many of them he's betrayed over the years. If he does survive, I think it will be due to the fact that there is no natural successor rather than because his colleagues feel true affection for or loyalty to him. Partygate has dragged on for months, despite the Tories' best attempts to declare it over. If there is a feeling among MPs that we can't go on like this, then the Prime Minister's time will be up. Of course, none of this may come to pass. If we get through the beginning of this week without an announcement that enough letters are in, then the Prime Minister is probably safe until the next crunch point, which will come at the end of this month during the Wakeford and Tiverton and Honiton by-elections. As frustrating as it is to wait for moments of reckoning that never come to pass, we shouldn't forget that Johnson's inexplicable survival so far isn't a win for him or his party. He has long lost his authority with the public. His performative chumminess and man-of-the-people act has been uncovered as a scam. This week, will everything or will it be nothing? But whatever happens, ordinary people will have made it clear they will never forget how this Prime Minister betrayed them, lied to them and tried to dodge accountability. That article was by Kirsty Strickland. From the National, Monday the 6th of June 2022, from the comment section, UK must rid itself of an honour system so sickeningly tied to the British Empire. By columnist Steph Payton. The history of colonialism by Europeans is a bloody one indeed, but when it comes to celebrating the oppressive subjugation of foreign cultures past, Nobody doesn't quite like the British state. The Jubilee has been an excessive weight fart of an event, with the reigning monarch missing much of it due to her declining health. Yet, among its various odes to exceptionalism, the Queen's Jubilee birthday honours list stands out as one of the most egregious examples of Britain's failure to address its colonial days. Over the past centuries, European expansionism and authoritarianism has left bloody footprints across the continent and time and time again. Six million Jews murdered at the hands of Germany's Nazi regime. An estimated 10 million Africans in the Congo killed under the brutal guidance of Belgium's King Leopold II. And the systematic torture and deaths of 1.5 million Algerians under France's colonial rule in the 1950s, to name but a few. And, at the heart of that, the United Kingdom's very own shameful contribution to the waking nightmare of glorious conquest, the British Empire. Between the concentration camps of the Boer War and the enforced starvation of Indians under imperial rule, Britain has a particularly violent past, even among its monstrous neighbours. 
up to 29 million died during the famine in India alone. European history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. With this bloody body count in mind, one which breezes past its colonial contemporaries in scale, I fail to see how it can ever be acceptable for the British state to benignly hand out awards and entitlements in service to its shameful imperial history. There is no difference between an Order of the British Empire, OBE, and an Order of the Third Reich. No difference becoming a Commander of the British Empire, CBE, and a Commander to the Butcher of the Congo. No difference between a British Empire medal and a French Colonial Medal. Should any of these awards have existed in modern Europe, they would be rightly condemned. So why not their equivalent here? No disrespect to those who have accepted an award as part of the Queen's birthday honours, actually some disrespect, but there's simply no moral justification for accepting an accolade that celebrates Britain's imperialism or, worse, involves taking it in the role of the knight or protector of the empire itself. For God and empire remains the motto of the honour system. It is explicit in its endorsement. And I can't understand why anyone would choose to have their name associated with the atrocities that took place. This is hardly a novel criticism of the honour system. In the early noughties, broadcaster John Snow investigated the allegations of corruption around the awards, having been offered and having refused to accept an honour of his own. Gus John, the Afro-Caribbean former director of education for Hackney, who was also offered the title of CBE, told Snow that he regards title, Commander of the British Empire, as part of the iconography of British imperialism, and that it would be a dishonour to wander the planet as a commander of the very institution whose legacy I have tried so hard to mitigate. I suspect that if you were to ask any of this year's recipients if they would accept an Order of the Third Reich, or Commander to the Butcher of the Congo, they would rightly say no. So why is the British equivalent seen as so removed from the violent institution the honour system shares a name with and deference towards. This isn't the noughties anymore. The world has had a very public-spirited discussion about how nations have failed to address their racist legacies. The British state, however, remains unwilling to engage in that discussion, and the YouGov poll in 2020 revealed that Brits, more than any other former colonial power, still look back fondly in the days of the empire as a force for good in the world, rather than one that systematically undermined the cultures of entire nations while stripping them of resources. Rather than engage, Britain seems happier to coo over photos of the Queen, a reigning symbol of empire, as she sits having tea with Paddington Bear who, let's be honest, would have been the first plane to Rwanda on the current British government plans. All the shallow glamour of the Jubilee and the honour system only highlights its failures. This isn't to say there shouldn't be some means of acknowledging the achievements and works of people who have contributed in a significant way to our culture, our society and our understanding of the world. But the archaic award system, with its various cash for honour scandals stretching back a century, is not fit for the modern world and I cringe to think how many former nations still recovering from their time under the Britain's heel view photos of grinning celebrities and Tory donors posing with their shiny medals inscribed with deference to the Empire. As far as I'm concerned, if everyone who was happy to take a medal or award without questioning the significance of what it stood for should be casting a critical eye over just why it felt acceptable to say yes when offered. Positively, 
over the past few years at least, the number of people rejecting honours has been on the increase, but Britain and Scotland still have much to do to address their history of colonialism and white supremacy, which is why every single medal in the name of the British Empire deserves to find itself at the bottom of a harbour, alongside the statue of Edward Colston. And that was a comment piece by Steph Payton. Recorded from the National on the 7th of June 2022, from the Culture section, the Scottish Traditional Boat Festival is to host huge array of Scott food vendors by Ross Hunter. My name's Amy. World-class Scottish produce will be on the menu at this year's Scottish Traditional Boat Festival. More than 35 food and drink vendors are set to appear at the 29th annual event at Portsoy Harbour, which is ex- expected to attract 16,000 people over two days. Locally sourced seafood products like lobster and crab will take centre stage, but visitors will also be treated to a selection of other Scottish treats, such as wild venison and Aberdeen Angus beef. However, it isn't just Scottish dishes on the agenda. The event's organisers are promising a range of options, including pizza, paella, bratwurst and the award-winning port soy ice cream. David Urquhart, chair of the Scottish Traditional Boat Festival, said, Our food fair is set to be even bigger and better than it has been in previous years. We are delighted to welcome back several businesses who have been loyal supporters for many years, alongside some new and exciting food and drink producers. Some of the more unusual food options available include fresh ostrich and emu eggs from Little Rowater Farm, vegan schnitzel from Elderworth Catering, and churros from Paella Ecosse. First held in 1993, the traditional boat festival returns in person for the first time since 2019. The 2020 event was cancelled and the 2021 event was online only. It is one of the country's biggest celebrations of maritime culture and heritage, bringing together some of Scotland's finest historic fishing vessels alongside sailing and rowing events. It also features music and dance performances with Celtic rock band Scary Vore headlining this year's event. The trad band first promised to play at the event's opening concert back in 2019, but were prevented from performing in person by coronavirus for two years running. Organisers say the festival contributes around £1 million to the local economy, with guest vessels, crews and visitors travelling from all across the country to attend. Tickets are on sale now and can be purchased on the festival website stbfportsoy.org forward slash buy dash tickets. That article was by Ross Hunter. Recorded from the National on the 7th of June 2022. From the Culture section. Isle of Lewis, Croft House in Stornoway named Scotland's Home of the Year 2022. By Jane MacLeod. My name's Amy. A traditional early 20th century Croft House in Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis has been crowned the winner of 2022 Scotland's Home of the Year in the finale of the BBC Scotland series filmed at Glasgow's House for an Art Lover. A fifth series of the property show, produced by IWC Media, begins filming later this month. Home to artist Tom Hickman, New Tolsta is a unique home filled with Tom's artwork and a variety of traditional pieces of furniture. After being uninhabited for 37 years, Tom bought New Tolsta in 2006, and since then has restored the Croft House to its former glory, as well as adding his own distinctive style throughout. The restored Croft House on the northeast coast of the Isle of Lewis follows a traditional two-up, two-down layout with a kitchen, living room and bathroom on the ground floor and two bedrooms upstairs. 
unanimously crowned the winner of Scotland's Home of the Year 2022 in the hour-long finale by all three judges, lifestyle blogger Kate Spears, interior designer Anna Campbell-Jones and architect and lecturer Michael Angus. New Tolster reduced Anna and Michael to tears during the final selection in the surroundings of Glasgow's house for an art lover. Homeowner Tom Hickman said, Well, I have to admit it does bring an unexpected smile. Winning is not something I'm used to. I'm certainly surprised, but way down deep somewhere, there's little voicing at last. As artists, we're all our own worst critics, so yes, it's nice to receive praise. I was fascinated to firstly see Anna, Michael and Kate's nicely understated reaction to the exterior, and they did well not to judge the book by its cover. It was strange not being able to welcome them, but now I see I needn't have worried as my home did that for me. I'd like to extend an open invitation to them all should they wish to take a second look and hear some of the stories behind the objects and fabric of my home. New tools to beat off stiff competition from eight other finalists from across Scotland, including homes in Fort William, Kippen, Kirkwall, Hawick, Edinburgh, Else, Frickle, Helensborough and Fife. Judge and interior designer Anna Campbell-Jones has congratulated New Tolstone winning the title saying We're always looking for individual homes filled with the expression of the homeowner's personality and taste and of course love. I don't think we have ever seen such an exceptional example of a home meeting these criteria. The overwhelming sense of the person who lives there communicated via the cornucopia of the incredible creations from the painted floors to the embroidery to the artwork on the walls all by his own hand. Anna, Kate and Michael's search for Scotland's Home of the Year took them the length and breadth of the country, visiting 27 homes showcasing a vast range of home styles. The article was by Jane MacLeod. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of June. Listed status being sought for Alistair Gray mural. An article written by Jane MacLeod, journalist. A mural by one of Scotland's most celebrated writers and artists could soon be recognised with listed status. Alistair Gray, author of Lanark, painted the Scottish wildlife mural at the Palace Rig Visitor Centre in Cumbernauld in 1974. Historic Environment Scotland, or HES, the leading public body for protecting the country's history and heritage, is seeking views from the public on proposals to list the centre at Category B because of Mr Gray's 20th century artwork in the entrance foyer. Category B is given to buildings of special architectural or historic interest that are major examples of a particular period, style or building type. With its depiction of Scottish wildlife in an idealised countryside scene, alongside industrial landscapes, the mural explores natural and human ecology and humankind's place in the universe, themes Mr Gray revisited throughout his artistic and literary work. The mural features many of his commonly used motifs, including the Tree of Life and the embracing figures of Adam and Eve in the lower left of the scene. It was commissioned by naturalist, writer and journalist David Stephen, who was closely involved in the planning of the Visitor's Centre and its emphasis on wildlife conservation and education. Mr Gray, who died in 2019, lived on site with Mr Stephen and his family while painting the mural, which is among the artist's earliest surviving public works. It had to be restored in 2001 by the artist and his assistant Robert Salmon after it suffered water damage. Although most famous for his writing, Mr Gray began as a visual artist and studied design and mural painting at Glasgow School of Art from 1952 to 1957. 
After graduation, he was commissioned to paint murals in and around Glasgow, while making a living as an artist, teacher and writer. As the mural is embedded in the fabric of the visitors' centre, the proposed listing would cover the entire building. Dara Parsons of HES said, Alistair Gray is one of Scotland's most important cultural figures of the 20th century, and his mural at Palace Rig is significant both as a major example of a later 20th century public mural and an important surviving example of his visual art. We're keen that people have an opportunity to have their say as part of this process, so we encourage anyone with an interest in the mural to take part in our consultation. The public consultation will run until June the 28th and can be accessed on the HES website. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National Politics on Wednesday the 8th of June. Boris Johnson axes high-speed rail link to Scotland. An article written by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. Boris Johnson has been branded cowardly after quietly scrapping a £3 billion high-speed rail link to Scotland. The announcement, made on Monday just 30 minutes before the result of a no-confidence vote on the Prime Minister was announced, confirms the UK government is abandoning plans which would have connected Scotland with the High Speed 2 project. Ministers are axing the 13-mile Goulbond link in Greater Manchester. The link will be removed from the High Speed 2 Phase 2B bill, despite it being included in the Integrated Rail Plan for transforming the rail network in the North and the Midlands, as well as creating more capacity and cutting journey times to Glasgow. The key link would have left the high-speed line between Crewe and Manchester and cut through Trafford to join the West Coast Main Line to the south of Wigan. High-speed 2 Minister Andrew Stevenson said the UK government will explore alternatives for how high-speed 2 trains will reach Scotland. The Goulbond link would have cut through the constituency of 1922 committee chairman Sir Graham Brady, who was overseeing the no-confidence ballot as the announcement was made on Monday. He and other MPs in the region have long campaigned for the plans to be scrapped and for the government to consider alternative routes. The SNP's Shadow Transport Secretary, Gavin Newlands, condemned the timing of the announcement and referenced other high-profile instances of the Tory administration pulling out of infrastructure projects in Scotland. He said, This sleekit move sums up Boris Johnson's tenure as Prime Minister, cowardly and shameful. His decision to announce this crucial cut on the same day as his vote of no confidence, knowing full well it would fall off the radar, is despicable. The original investment would have drastically improved Scotland's rail links with the north-west of England, but yet again this Westminster government is tearing it apart. Whether it's promising to improve rail links in Scotland, building a multi-billion pound bridge between Scotland and Northern Ireland, or investing £1 billion in carbon capture in the northeast, nothing that comes out of Boris Johnson's mouth can be trusted. The announcement comes six months after the UK government dropped its plan to extend High Speed 2 to Leeds. Construction on the Goulburn link was due to start in the early 2030s, with the connection expected to open towards the end of that decade or in the early 2040s. Rail industry bodies also reacted with fury to the decision. In a joint statement, the Railway Industry Association, Rail Freight Group and High Speed Rail Group said... It's hugely disappointing to discover that, on a day when much political attention was focused elsewhere, the government confirmed that the Goulburn link is to be removed from the High Speed 2 project. 
Only six months ago, the Gold Bond Link was included in the Integrated Rail Plan, as well as the High Speed 2 Phase 2B bill. The link has been provided for in the budget for High Speed 2 and is needed to allow adequate capacity on the national rail network to fulfil its vital function of handling the nation's longer-distance movements of both passengers and freight. Without this connection, a bottleneck will be created north of Crewe on the West Coast Main Line, which in turn will negatively impact outcomes for passengers, decarbonisation and levelling up. The trio warned of heightened uncertainty for rail businesses working on High Speed 2 and communities living near the planned line. They went on, given the government has now decided that it does not wish to proceed with the Goldborn link, it's absolutely essential it confirms as quickly as possible how ministers intend to protect the benefits of High Speed 2 investment and does so without delay. Such an important strategic question of how High Speed 2 services connect into Scotland cannot be left open or uncertain. Plans for the Goldborn link faced fierce criticism from MPs, councillors and local residents. The government-commissioned Union Connectivity Review, published in November 2021, said emerging evidence suggested an alternative connection between High Speed 2 and the West Coast Main Line could offer more benefits and reduce journey times by two to three minutes. Mr Stevenson said, High Speed 2 is a once-in-a-lifetime project that will transform travel across the entire UK as we know it and serve millions of people for hundreds of years to come, and it's absolutely vital that we get this right from the outset. Removing this link is about ensuring that we've left no stone unturned when it comes to working with our Scottish counterparts to find a solution that will best serve the great people of Scotland. An article written by Angus Cochran. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of June. Drones could be used to plant trees at Scotland's most infamous road. An article written by Jack Hoch, Deputy Editor. Drones could be used to plant tree seeds on the hillside above Scotland's most infamous road if a recent trial takes off. Seeds were recently scattered across six hectares of Glen Crow as part of an ongoing project to reduce the number of serious landslips at the Rest and Be Thankful, which is frequently closed. The trial, believed to be the first in the UK, saw 20 kilograms of native tree seeds dispersed at the A83 over a two-day period. They'll now be monitored until next spring. If successful, drones will then be used again with a gravity-fed system to drop pellets of seeds containing a nutrient gel into the soil and exposed mineral slopes. The test was carried out in March as part of Forestry and Land Scotland's, or FLS, contribution to the improvement scheme, which is being run in partnership with Transport Scotland. James Hand, FLS Operations Forester, who is overseeing the planting, said... Using drones to plant trees is quite common in North America and parts of Europe, but as far as we're aware, it's new to the UK. The benefits of using a drone are that it's quicker and more able to scatter seeds on sites that people would find it hard or even dangerous to work on. This first trial was about scattering seeds and determining how fast and high to fly and still achieve the dispersal that we want. It went very well, and now it's a matter of waiting to see how many seedlings emerge. Frequently closed due to landslips and with millions of pounds having already been ploughed into measures to protect the road, it's hoped the move will be a win-win solution, improving the thoroughfare's resilience and its landscape. Mr Hand added, 
Next year, we plan to step up the trial and use a drone with a gravity-fed system to drop pellets of seed containing a nutrient gel into the soil and exposed mineral slopes. The gel packets should increase the likelihood of the seeds germinating and growing. If the technology and the technique both work, this could be of significant benefit when we look at increasing the resilience of other sites that are at risk from the changing climate. An article written by Jack Hoch. The National Politics on Wednesday the 8th of June. First Minister says India Ref 2 will happen in 2023 with or without Boris Johnson. An exclusive article written by Steph Braun, multimedia political journalist. Nicola Sturgeon has pledged Scots will get their chance to have their say on independence in 2023, whether Boris Johnson is in office for another year or not. The Prime Minister narrowly dodged having to make a resignation speech on Monday after he won a confidence vote by 211 votes to 148. Under current rules, it means he is now safe for a year, but having lost the backing of the vast majority of his backbenchers, there is consensus his days are numbered. And we asked Miss Sturgeon whether she'd be grateful to have him forced out of Number 10, given he's made it clear he will not hand her a Section 30 order to enable her to hold another independence referendum. But she said it would make no difference whether he stays or goes, and vowed Scots would get a referendum on leaving the UK in the first half of this parliamentary term. During the opening of a new Scottish Trade Union Congress hub in Glasgow, she told The National... People in Scotland will have the ability to make their views known on independence, whether Boris Johnson is Prime Minister or not, because that is democracy and that's what I'm focused on. I have a mandate to give people the choice within the first half of this Parliament and I intend to honour that mandate and I will set out more details on that shortly. Miss Sturgeon was in Bridgeton to open the STUC's new Margaret Irwin Centre, which will provide the organisation and Scotland's wider trade union movement with a national hub for trade union engagement and excellence. She said the result of Monday's confidence vote underlined the democratic deficit in Scotland after just two out of 59 Scottish MPs supported Mr Johnson. She insisted the country was now stuck with a lame duck Prime Minister and described the result as the worst of all worlds for the Tories. But she batted away suggestions that the SNP was enjoying seeing Boris Johnson struggle. She added, What's in the best interests of the SNP is of course of interest to me, but sometimes you have to think what's in the biggest interests of the country. Scotland is my priority, but the UK as a whole is facing some of the biggest challenges that have been faced in most of our lifetimes, and the UK deserves a Prime Minister focused on these challenges. Leadership is about rising above the interests of your own party. An exclusive article written by Steph Braun. The National Politics on Wednesday the 8th of June. Taoiseach urges UK not to scrap Northern Ireland Protocol. An article written by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. Tearing up its own Brexit agreement would be a historic low point for the UK, according to Taoiseach Michael Martin. The Irish leader has warned Britain's plans to act unilaterally over the Northern Ireland Protocol would be deeply damaging. Addressing the European Parliament, Mr Martin said the UK government's proposed legislation to override key parts of the Brexit deal would be to the benefit of absolutely no one. The Irish leader also said during his visit to Strasbourg that he disagrees with the UK government's handling of the protocol and accused it of failing to engage with the EU. 
His comments come amid a standoff between the UK and the EU over the protocol, an agreement designed to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland, but which has created fresh checks on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Mr Martin said, I have said many times that there are solutions to practical problems under the protocol if there's a political will to find them, but that requires partnership. It requires the UK government to engage with good faith, seriousness and commitment. Unilateral action to set aside a solemn agreement would be deeply damaging. It would mark a historic low point, signalling a disregard for essential principles of laws which are the foundation of international relations. And it would, quite literally, be to the benefit of absolutely no one. Without a spirit of partnership, there would have been no peace process in Northern Ireland. Without trust, without engagement, without a willingness to see things from the point of view of others, there would have been no Good Friday Agreement, no quarter century of peace in Northern Ireland in which young people have been able to grow and to flourish as themselves. All of us in positions of leadership owe it to them not to treat lightly what was so hard won. He added, I disagree with the approach that the United Kingdom government has taken in respect of dealing with the protocol and its failure really to engage and to engage in a substantive way with the European Union and particularly the Commission and Maras Sefcovic. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has said the UK intends to legislate to override parts of the deal on Northern Ireland with the details expected to be announced in the coming week. Opposition to that deal has seen the DUP block efforts to restore power sharing in the region. Northern Ireland Minister Conor Burns said the legislation will be published soon. He said the protocol has led to ridiculously excessive checks on goods moving within the United Kingdom's internal market. We have been very clear with the EU that if they can broaden the mandate, if Vice President of the Commission Maros Sefcovic can be given more room by European Council President Ursula von der Leyen, We are absolutely determined and willing to engage with the EU to reach a negotiated settlement that is absolutely in the best interests of both sides, Mr Burns told RTE Morning Ireland. But the Vice President has been very clear that he cannot move beyond the mandate of the proposals that he put in place last October, and we have been very clear with him that those do not go anywhere near far enough in achieving the goals the United Kingdom would like to achieve. We recognise the attractiveness of the protocol and the place that leaves Northern Ireland in, but the reality is that we have now got ridiculously excessive checks on goods that are moving within the United Kingdom's internal market that will never go near the Irish Republic, that are absolutely no threat whatsoever to the integrity of the single market. Mr Burns also rejected Mr Martin's assertions that the EU has and will continue to be flexible in its negotiations. That's not our lived experience from the conversations that we've been having with the EU over very many months, the Conservative Minister added. They talk of flexibility within the terms, within the constraints of the proposals they tabled last October. We've been clear with them that those proposals do not go as far as they would need to go to respect the integrity of the United Kingdom's internal market. It's a very, very simple proposition here. We're simply saying the goods moving within our own country, with the exception of live animals, which we can see the need for checks on, obviously, the goods moving within our own country should move freely. They pose no risk whatsoever. We're very clear that the proposals that we'll put forward, the legislation that we'll put to the Parliament, will absolutely be lawful and appropriate. An article written by Angus Cochran. The National 
News on Wednesday the 8th of June. Scottish NHS staffing levels at record high. An article written by Gregor Young and read by Howell. NHS staffing in Scotland has increased by nearly one quarter and reached a record high level, the SNP has said. Since 2007, the number of nurses, midwives, medical and dental consultants and allied health professionals, excluding paramedics, have all seen staffing levels increase. The Scottish Government has also recruited a further 1,000 additional healthcare support staff and 200 registered nurses from overseas. The SNP said that an enormous gratitude is owed to NHS staff and that as part of this they are determined to keep pressure off them by ensuring services are well staffed. Over 5,500 qualified nurses and midwives have been recruited, an increase of 13.7% while a further 2,000 medical and dental consultants have been employed, an increase of 63.2%. For allied health professionals, not including paramedics, staff levels have increased by 26.3% to around 2,000 workers. SNP MSP Gillian Martin said, Throughout the term of the SNP Scottish Government, Scotland's NHS staffing levels have been bolstered, ensuring that Scotland continues to have the best performing NHS services in the UK. Working in Scotland's NHS is an incredible privilege and it continues to be an attractive prospect, as NHS staff in Scotland are the best paid compared to anywhere else in the UK. We owe an enormous gratitude to our NHS staff for their efforts during the pandemic and the SNP Scottish Government has recognised this by not only paying them a fair wage but also releasing pressure on them by ensuring our services are well staffed. Despite the challenges post-pandemic and improvements still to be made, Scotland continues to have the best performing A&E services in the UK. That's why it's only the SNP that can be trusted to protect Scotland's NHS and why it's only independence that can protect it from being sold off to the highest bidder. An article written by Gregor Young. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of June. Police officer found knife near where Bayou was restrained. An article written by Gregor Young. An inquiry into the death of Sheku Bayou in police custody has heard that an officer found a knife across the road from where he was being restrained. PC James McDonough was giving evidence to the inquiry in Edinburgh where he claimed he had taken a step back from officers who were administering first aid to Mr Bayou after he became unconscious on the morning of May 3rd, 2015. Mr Bayou died after the events in Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy. Mr McDonough said... I've taken the opportunity to look for the knife that was still unaccounted for and it's probably just purely by chance. I take a look over my right shoulder and I can see something on the grass area on the other side of the road. It looked like the inside of a crisp packet. Curiosity got the better of me. I went and had a look and found a knife on the grass. The inquiry previously heard from PC Ashley Tomlinson who said he was unable to find a knife on Mr Bayou after a search when he was restrained. Mr McDonough was also asked about de-escalation techniques used when officers are called to incidents where knives are involved. The officer, who was still in his probationary period with six months' service during the events in question, said, Your best tool is your voice, communication skills. You generally find there's no timescale on how long it should take to be able to communicate with someone. Even if someone is giving you some sort of response, you can keep going down the route of communication and eventually they will come down to your level and understanding and become compliant, essentially.
asked by senior counsel to the inquiry, Angela Graham QC, what would happen if officers received no response. Mr McDonough replied, It depends what the threat is, I suppose, what the circumstances are. He continued, If there's no knife visible, the threat goes up at that point. Ms Graham asked about his feelings on the day Mr Bayou died. Mr McDonough said, My emotions were all over the place. I've only got six months' service at that point. There's a lot going through my head. Is this right for me? Is this normal? Does this happen more regularly? So quite upset as well. The officer who still serves with Police Scotland said he feared he might lose his job or be imprisoned. Ms Graham also asked about his equality and diversity training at Tully Allen Police College and if he had an awareness of stereotypes relating to black men. He said, Yes, I'm aware of stereotypes. A stereotype I'm aware of is... All black males are superior athletes or good at running. Another one, it was mentioned the other day, all young black males are involved in gangs, so I'm aware of them because I think it's important to be aware of them because it's about being able to educate people, being able to recognise stereotypes. The inquiry yesterday also heard from Sergeant Scott Maxwell, who was running the shift on May the 3rd. In a statement, he said actions by officers that had been described to him had been fully justified. He also claimed he did not have the full details of the scene upon arrival. He said, If I'd known he'd been struck in the head, I would have called for an ambulance straight away. Mr Maxwell will appear at the inquiry again today to continue his evidence. An article written by Gregor Young. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of June. Rail pay disputes talks set to resume, says Union. An article written by Jane MacLeod. Talks aimed at ending a pay dispute between Scotland's rail provider and train drivers will resume tomorrow, the union said. ASLEF members have refused to work on rest days as a result of the dispute, forcing ScotRail to implement a temporary timetable cancelling more than 700 services. The union previously agreed an offer from ScotRail, but it was later rejected by the executive committee. Talks resumed on Monday before being adjourned within a matter of hours, but ScotRail deemed the discussions to be constructive. Meanwhile, Transport Minister Jenny Gilruth has said she cannot divulge the value of four contracts with ScotRail's former operator that have continued since the service was nationalised. Abellio was stripped of the contract on April 1st, with the Scottish Government stepping in as ScotRail's new owners. But parts of the service are still delivered by the Dutch firm, which lost the franchise because of poor performance. Through a Freedom of Information request, the TSSA trade union discovered that the running of a customer helpline, parts of the payroll department, rail replacement bus services and taxis, and the management of tenancies of stations are still being run by Abellio. Under questioning from Labour MSP Katie Clark, Ms Gilruth said, I'm afraid I cannot disclose the financials involved in these contracts because they're commercially sensitive. It was prudent to carry over a limited number of contracts, whether delivered by Abellio or other suppliers, to maintain ScotRail services from day one of public ownership and to give that continuity of service for passengers and for staff alike. There are only four Abellio contracts from the almost 200 suppliers that remain in place and three of those have a one-year break clause point, which will allow for competitive alternatives to be looked at. Meanwhile, thousands of railway workers across the UK are to stage three days of strikes later this month in the biggest outbreak of industrial action in the industry in a generation. 
members of the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union, or RMT, at Network Rail and 13 train operators, including those in Scotland, will walk out on June the 21st, June the 23rd and June the 25th. The union said it will be the biggest strike on the railways since 1989. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of June. River Clyde will seem boom-built to collect polluting litter. An article written by Jane McLeod, journalist. A steel boom is set to be built on the River Clyde, with a device designed to catch litter as it flows out towards the sea. A new scheme will see the large boom suspended across part of the river to catch plastic and litter pollution in an effort to limit Glasgow's environmental impact. Everything netted by the device will be extracted and analysed by Glasgow City Council, allowing them to identify the most common types of litter that makes its way into the city's waters. The announcement comes as the United Nations World Oceans Day begins today. In partnership with Marine Scotland, the Scottish Environment Protection Agency and Peel Ports, the one-year project will use steel mesh panels which will trap potentially harmful rubbish but leave plenty of space for fish and wildlife to travel freely in the water. The project aims to reduce litter in the river and also stop it being swept downstream to places like the Aracha Litter Sink, an area lumped with vast amounts of waste delivered by winds and tides. According to Marine Scotland, litter on the Aracha foreshore comes equally from the Irish Sea and the Clyde River. Seaweed harvested there was previously used as garden fertiliser by local residents, but it's now so contaminated that this is no longer possible. Pupils from Sunnyside School of Conservation have previously travelled to Aracha to take part in an annual litter pick. Olivia Patterson, aged 12, of Sunnyside School said, Sunnyside Ocean Defenders are beaming about Glasgow booming. As regular cleaners of beaches and our city streets, we know that the litter dropped here in Glasgow can make it to the coast. We're delighted Glasgow City Council is putting a boom in to collect litter floating to the sea. Councillor Angus Miller, Glasgow's climate convener, said, Marine litter damages the environment and can harm wildlife. Removing it using passive technology like a boom is an environmentally friendly way to tackle the problem. The project will not only benefit Glasgow, local wildlife and migrating fish, it will also help reduce the levels of rubbish reaching destinations downstream, including the Aracha foreshore. If the boom is successful, it'll become a permanent feature on the Clyde. Hopefully this project will spark a ripple effect and inspire other towns and villages along the Clyde to do something similar. The exact location of the boom is yet to be announced. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National Politics on Wednesday the 8th of June Scottish Government can prepare for independence, legal advice confirms. A front-page article written by Xander Richards, political reporter. The Scottish Government has published extracts from the legal advice it has received on a second independence referendum. The documents show the Scottish Government is able to lawfully work on proposals for independence and call for transfers of power – according to opinions given by law officers in late 2019. It further implies that preparation of a bill, presumably related to a second independence referendum, would also be legal. However, the extracts published do not make clear exactly which bill is being referred to. 
They also do not address whether ministers have been advised that holding a second independence vote is within the scope of the current powers held by the Scottish Government. There are less than two A4 pages of published advice in total, with the vast majority of space being taken up by two drafts of the same submission dated January 24, 2020. This submission reveals that the Scottish Government has been told it can legally ask the Electoral Commission to test a referendum question, and previously did so when Michael Russell was Constitution Secretary. However, plans were interrupted by the Covid pandemic. The advice was published through the Scottish Government's website after a Freedom of Information request for any legal advice to ministers or provided by the Civil Service on the topic of a second independence referendum in 2020. The request was first submitted by the Scotsman, but the government initially refused, saying doing so would breach legal professional privilege. The SNP government further argued that releasing the advice would set a new precedent. Constitution Secretary Angus Robertson told MSPs in May, Government does not disclose legal advice, including whether law officers have or have not advised on any matter except in exceptional circumstances. The content of any such advice is confidential and subject to legal professional privilege. This ensures full and frank legal advice can be given. Issuing his decision, Commissioner Darren Fitzhenry said there were some exceptions to the convention of not disclosing legal advice. He said, Given the fundamental importance of Scotland's future constitutional relationship to all individuals living in Scotland and its fundamental importance to political and public debate at the time of the request and requirement for review, the Commissioner is satisfied that disclosing this information would significantly enhance public debate on the issue. The Scottish Government was given a deadline by which to release the information requested, although some of it remained exempt. In a response published alongside the legal advice, the Government said that the case should not be seen to have set any precedent for the future. It said, It should be stressed, however, that the Scottish Government's publication of the material in this case does not set any precedent for its position on releasing any other information that is subject to legal professional privilege including in response to any other Freedom of Information request. Nor does the Information Commissioner's decision represent a binding legal precedent. The Government will therefore continue to apply the relevant exemptions. Constitution Secretary Angus Robertson said the Government had considered the Commissioner's decision carefully. He added Ministers had considered appealing the ruling, stressing that the Convention on Not Disclosing Advice is important for ensuring good government and that the government considers that there are good grounds for a successful appeal to the Court of Session to challenge the Commissioner's ruling. But Mr Robertson said, the material covered by this decision dates from 2020 and relates to proposed government actions that have since been taken forward and on which the legal position can therefore already be assumed. The government has therefore concluded, on the particular circumstances of this case only, that the time and expense required for an appeal would not be merited, and that it will release and publish the information concerned. A front-page article written by Xander Richards. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of June. Warning of rebound after emissions target is met. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. Scotland met its emissions target during the first year of the pandemic, but the Net Zero Secretary has warned of a substantial rebound after Covid restrictions were eased. 
The Scottish Government exceeded its interim target reduction for greenhouse gases of 56% in 2020 by 2.7%, compared to baseline figures from 1990. However, the biggest drops were in domestic transport, aviation and shipping, all of which were severely impacted by COVID-19 restrictions in 2020. Climate campaigners have urged the government to up its game and use enhanced measures to make sure the country reaches its targets in 2030 and 2045. Cabinet Secretary Michael Matheson said that despite the pandemic impact, the figures show the scale of transformational change needed to consistently reach climate targets, adding that working from home and using cars less can have a real impact. Overall emission figures for Scotland in 2020 were estimated to be around 40 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent, a 12% decrease overall. It adds, The main contributors to this decrease were reductions in emissions in domestic transport, international aviation and shipping, and energy supply sectors. Energy supply, part of the move to renewable sources, has been on a downward trend since 2000, but has shown significant improvements from 2010 onwards and was at its lowest in 2020. Certain areas have also stagnated, including agriculture, waste management, business and residential emissions. Transport has been the biggest polluter in Scotland since 2015, after a huge drop to energy supply and still makes the top spot. Mike Robinson, chair of Stop Climate Chaos Scotland, said that the figures tell two stories. He said, Measures brought in to protect public health during the COVID-19 lockdowns undoubtedly played a part, with more people working from home and travel restricted. However, we also know that emissions will have rebounded as these temporary measures were eased. Crucially, we need the Scottish Government to treat climate change as the emergency it declared it to be back in 2019. We need to see more ambitious action in all sectors, in particular transport, agriculture and housing. Mr Matheson said the data shows progress in reducing emissions across the Scottish economy. He added, Nonetheless, the most significant changes are in the transport sector and are associated with the temporary measures taken in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We must be prepared for these figures to substantially rebound in 2021. There can be no satisfaction taken in emissions reductions resulting from the health, economic and social harms of the pandemic. However, the data does provide a valuable lesson regarding the scale of the transformational change needed in response to the climate emergency and shows that embedding habits such as working from home and using cars less can make a real impact on reducing emissions. An article written by Abby Garten-Crosby. Recorded from The National on the 8th of June 2022 from the Culture section, my name's Amy. Cutting Edge Theatre, Theatrical Opportunities for Disabled People Unveiled by Jane MacLeod. A Scottish theatre company has unveiled a programme to create new opportunities in the performing arts for disabled people of all ages, including the launch of a youth theatre for learning disabled teenagers. Cutting Edge Theatre, based in Edinburgh, has received funding from the Scottish Power Foundation, which will help to develop the Inspired Disability Arts Programme, with the Cutting Edge Youth Theatre helping to craft opportunities for learning disabled people aged 14 to 18. The theatre company aims to develop a strategy that establishes a clear pathway into theatre from those of primary school age all the way to professional training and employment. Suzanne Loftus, 
artistic director at Cutting Edge Theatre said, It's about offering equal access to the performing arts. I was able to do drama at school and then join a youth theatre. People with disabilities should have the same access I had, whether they want to pursue a career in theatre or just take a class for fun. When I started to look to see where in Scotland learning disabled people could train in performing arts in a supported environment with their peers, the answer is almost nowhere. This award from the Scottish Power Foundation means we can start to change that. The theatre launched as Young Company for Learning Disabled Young People last year in partnership with Capital Theatres and with support from Edinburgh International Festival. Now the newly unveiled Youth Theatre will be launched in September with drop-in drama classes for children and adults and is developing training which can be accessed online. Melanie Hill, Executive Officer and Trustee at the Scottish Power Foundation said, It's so important that everyone has equal access to pursue their passions and nobody is excluded because of their disabilities. Cutting Edge Theatre does outstanding work to change attitudes towards disabled people in the arts and ensure that everyone can have access to opportunities that many take for granted. The Inspired Disability Arts Programme and Cutting Edge Youth Theatre are shiny examples of the difference Scottish Power Foundation funding can make to help transform people's lives and I'm so proud that we're able to play our part in helping people find and develop their creative talents. I have no doubt the programme will be a real hit. I hope it makes a long and lasting difference in ensuring quality for disabled people in the arts and theatre. That article was by Jane McLeod. The National, June 9. Arbroath Firm secures major London public transport contract. Report by Craig Bremner. Journey Call, a service centre that provides customer service support and smart card services for the UK transport industry from its Arbroath office, has won three contract extensions with Transport for London. TFL. The extensions will see the company, which is part of the ESP group, manage customer service handling for Oyster Cards, Santander, Cycle Hire and correspondence for people travelling in London. The three contracts experience an average of 4 million contact requests annually across a range of contact channels, including telephone and social media, and ESP has opened new premises in Hull to service the contract. ESP Group Chief Executive Teresa Slevin said, We are thrilled to be continuing to work with TFL on these three contracts and are very proud to have partnered with them for over 16 years. TFL is one of our key clients and we have more than 100 employees dedicated specifically to work on the account. This will be the first time that we have people working on TFL across our sites in England and Scotland. Fola Ola Fair, Customer Service Delivery Manager at TFL added, The customer is at the heart of everything we do. So we are delighted to continue working with Journey Call to provide the high quality service our customers expect from TFL. As the pandemic started, Journey Call was immediately granted key worker status 
and quickly shifted its 200-strong team to home working while setting up three additional emergency lines to support key workers' travel requirements. JourneyCall provides customer services and technology-led solutions focused on mass public transport systems such as rail and bus and operates the largest transport contact centre in the UK. The Scottish business provides smart card technology and customer support for Network Rail, TransLink, Transport for Wales and West Midlands trains among others. In April this year, the ESP Group opened new premises in Hull to service a new £3.8 million journey call contract with Network Rail, as well as the Systex part of the business. These contract extensions will see TFL workstreams going live in Hull for the first time, providing opportunities for the business in England and providing business continuity across the two sites. Slevin added, We pride ourselves on our customer relationship management services and this long-lasting partnership on such a high-profile contract is testament to this. We are committed to ensuring that every contact we have with passengers and customers provides a positive experience and our highly skilled teams have a proven ability to effectively and efficiently manage a full spectrum of inbound and outbound customer interactions. We look forward to continuing to help thousands of travellers move around London every day. Report by Greg Bremner The National, June 9 Right to buy scheme will not be revived in Scotland, say SNP. Report by Steph Braun The SNP have rejected reviving the controversial right to buy scheme, which gives council tenants the chance to buy their homes. Boris Johnson is expected to say today he wants to extend the policy to people who rent from housing associations. But Housing Secretary Shona Robison told the Daily Record almost half a million properties had been lost to the social rented sector in Scotland as a result of the unsustainable scheme. She said the Scottish Government has no plans to reintroduce the right to buy, an unsustainable policy that took almost half a million homes out of the social rented sector and into private ownership. In the first 10 years since the policy ended, we estimate that we will have kept up to 15,500 homes in the social rented sector, homes which will continue to be available to future generations at affordable rents. What's more, in the four years to 2021, we delivered over nine times more social rented homes per head of population than England, and our per capita spending on affordable housing is more than three times higher than the UK government's. We want to ensure everyone has a warm, affordable home that meets their needs 
And that is why we have committed to delivering a further 110,000 affordable homes by 2032, with at least 70% of these available for social rent. Johnson is also set to suggest allowing housing benefit that currently goes towards rent to count towards a mortgage as he attempts to repair relations with Tory MPs. Right to Buy was first introduced in the early 1980s by Margaret Thatcher and helped thousands of council tenants get onto the property ladder at discount rates. By 1997, more than 1,700,000 dwellings in the UK had been sold under the scheme, but it has been cited as one of the major factors in the drastic reduction of social housing. The SNP vowed to scrap right to buy, and the policy officially ended in Scotland in 2014. Report by Steph Braun The National June 9. Ofgem delivers a scathing verdict on energy firms' response to Storm Arwen. Report by Angus Cochrane. Scots left without power for days following Storm Arwen were provided an unacceptable service by electricity networks, industry watchdog Ofgem has ruled. Winds of 100 miles per hour caused widespread disruption, uprooted trees and damaged power lines, cutting power to nearly 1 million homes in Scotland and Northern England from November 26. Outages lasted for more than 10 days in some area and customers complained of poor communication from their suppliers about when they would be reconnected. Ofgem has carried out an independent review of the industry, focusing on whether the power outages could have been prevented if correct and timely information was given to customers affected, whether power was restored quickly enough, and how customers were supported after the storm, including compensation payments. It found staff at distribution network operators, the DNOs, worked hard in challenging conditions, but concluded that thousands of customers were provided with an unacceptable service. Ofgem Chief Executive Jonathan Brearley said, Distribution network companies faced challenging conditions in the aftermath of Storm Arwen, and I pay tribute to the many colleagues in these companies who supported customers and worked to get them back on power as quickly as possible. However, it was unacceptable that nearly 4,000 homes in parts of England and Scotland were off power for over a week, often without accurate information as to when power would be restored. Network companies need to do better, not just to prevent power disruptions, but to ensure that when power is off, they work smarter to get people back on power quicker and keep customers informed with accurate and timely information. This is the very least customers should be able to expect. The frequency of extreme weather events is only set to increase 
So it is really important that industry and those involved more widely learn from Storm Arwen to better respond in future. The Ofgem review found some affected customers remained off power for an unacceptable amount of time, received poor communication from their network operator and compensation payments took too long. Plans in place to deal with the storm were not sufficient to deal with the scale of the damage. Northern Power Grid did not directly contact vulnerable customers enrolled on its priority services register prior to Storm Arwen, which should have been carried out as part of its winter preparedness campaign. The same firm accepted the performance of its call centre fell below the standards it should have been able to meet during a severe storm, potentially breaching its licence. Limited remote monitoring stopped firms from understanding the full scale and complexity of faults. There was some correlation between the age of electricity poles and how badly damaged they were in the storm, although this needed further examination. Three firms, Northern Power Grid, Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks, and Electricity Northwest paid nearly £30 million in direct compensation to affected customers after the storms and will now pay a further £10.3 million in voluntary redress payments to the affected communities. Ofgem has recommended firms should submit their winter plans to the regulator so it is sure they are prepared. They should also stress test their websites and call centres to ensure adequate capacity during severe weather events. Firms should also develop systems to speed up mass compensation payments. Business and Energy Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng said, Storm Arwen was one of the most extreme weather events in decades and I am grateful to all those engineers, armed forces personnel and volunteers who work night and day to get people reconnected to power. However, it is clear that thousands of customers were badly let down by electricity network companies, which is why I launched this review to identify and address any failings. This action plan will ensure better preparedness for future storms, boosting the security of our electricity system and protecting families. Report by Angus Cochran Recorded from the National on the 9th of June 2022 from the Culture Section. Recorded by Amy. Here Diversity Courses in Scotland to Aid Representation and Entertainment by Jane MacLeod. A specialist hair and makeup and special effects store for workers in TV, film and theatre industries has launched its first series of multi-textured and afro hair courses to upskill industry professionals. Glasgow-based MUHD has launched the courses in an effort to facilitate all backgrounds and communities within the entertainment industries. The facility noted that while on-screen representation has seen an increase, there are still problems with racial representation in off-screen positions, 
particularly in hair and makeup departments. Emily Porter, founder and owner of MUHD, said, By introducing this type of course, we aim to broaden the depth of students' technical knowledge, ensuring their skill set is inclusive of all ethnicities. Within our industry, we have an exceptionally talented workforce of hair and makeup artists, and it is important for us as a business to continue that legacy while promoting inclusivity and skill development. Having talent feel comfortable in your chair is the most important part of the creative process. No matter the background, we want to encourage a safe environment where both our artists and the talent they are working with feel confident and comfortable in the delivery of their work. The three-day masterclass for multi-textured and Afro hair will be run by Afro hair specialist Michelle Garand, where attendees will learn about the hair characteristics, styling techniques and product knowledge. Graham said, Our world is beautifully diverse and it's crucial to honour that representation across our industries, especially the entertainment sector, where it has taken a long time to get to where we are today. Gaining knowledge and skills with Afro and multi-textured hair as a stylist is not only important, but hugely beneficial, particularly when understanding the stark differences between textures in comparison to Caucasian and Asian hair types. That article was by Jane McLeod. Recorded from the National on the 9th of June 2022, from the Culture section. Recorded by Amy. Edinburgh International Book Festival. Nicola Sturgeon and Jarvis Cocker to take part. By Ninian Wilson. Writers including Alexander McCall-Smith, Val McDermott and Julian Barnes and musician Jarvis Cocker will be amongst those taking part in the Edinburgh International Book Festival this year. There will be more than 600 events during the festival in August, which will feature in excess of 550 authors, performers, musicians and thinkers from 50 countries under the banner All Together Now. The programme will build on the hybrid format developed over the past two years of the pandemic, with live in-person events, many of which will also be available to stream or to watch at a later date. Those appearing at the festival include Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Ressa, Outlander writer Diana Gabaldon, linguist Noam Chomsky and writer and director Armando Inucci. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon will join the festival for two events, interviewing writer Louise Welsh about her new novel The Second Cut and actor Brian Cox about life on the Scottish stage and his role in the television series Succession. Nick Barley, director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, said, We've learned a great deal in the last two years, so that alongside the return of our full-scale in-person festival, we can also offer the accessibility and international reach of live-streamed events. The world has changed immeasurably since 2019. We're learning to live with the effects of the pandemic and war in Europe. We're also beginning to imagine what a better future should look like. Exploring these issues and inspiring conversations with scientists, historians, poets and novelists is exactly where the book festival comes into its own. Glasgow-born writer Douglas Stewart, who won the Booker Prize with his first novel, Shuggy Bane, will be back in Scotland to discuss his next book, Young Mungo, while writers Irvin Welsh, Maggie O'Farrell and Sir Ian Rankin will also be taking part in the festival. Appearing via screenlink from their home countries, will be Helen Garner from Australia and Jonathan Franzen, A.M. Holmes and Jennifer Egan from the US. 
There will also be events featuring musicians including Martha Wainwright, Jarvis Cocker, Vashti Bunyan and Deacon Blue's Ricky Ross who will share stories of their journeys through the world of music. Questions around the role of Europe and the impact of war will be discussed at the festival with Ukrainian historian Siri Ploki among those taking part. There will be non-fiction events considering black perspectives including Lord Simon Woolley, founder and director of Operation Black Vote and the first black man to lead in Oxbridge College, talking about his life with Baroness Lola Young. The festival will also feature a range of LGBT plus voices. Meanwhile, the Bailey Gifford Children's Programme will include writers such as Julia Donaldson, Cressida Cowell and Michael Murpurgo. The book festival, which runs from August 13th to 29th, will take place at Edinburgh College of Art again this year and also add new spaces to accommodate events such as Central Hall and Lothian Road. Alan Bett, Head of Literature and Publishing at Creative Scotland, said, This fantastic 2022 programme once again brings the literary world to Edinburgh, whether in person or online. It allows readers and audiences in Scotland to engage with important contemporary themes through the work of the world's best writers. As part of this, Scottish communities, writers and books take their place through innovative programming. This includes Scotland Through Time, using sign language, image and performance to look at Scotland's past, present and future through new books such as Harry Josephine Gill's innovative Arcadian sci-fi, Deep Wheel Arcadia, and Chitra Rinaswamy's important new blending of biography and memoir, Homelands. Tickets are on sale from 10am on Thursday, June 23rd. That article was by Ninian Wilson. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.